0: a question that I'm not really going to ask you to raise your hands on, although it's not that personal, so you could, but just think about it in your mind. How many of you have a cross displayed somewhere, whether it's in your home, or on, maybe up on a wall somewhere, on a piece of jewelry you wear, like a necklace, or on a shirt that you wear? Just think about that. Do you have a cross somewhere? I know for me, I, I was thinking about it, I've never really worn jewelry that much. I have a wedding ring, but besides that, I don't really care for jewelry. So I've never worn a uh, necklace with a cross. But I was thinking about around our house, we do have crosses in a variety of different manners up on our walls and in pictures and things like that. And here at church, we obviously have a cross very prominently displayed. I mean, it's hard to walk in the sanctuary and miss the nearly life-size cross up here on the stage. Crosses are very prominent in terms of how Christians identify themselves in terms of the symbolism that we use, but I think that's kind of ironic in a way, when you really think about what a cross is all about. See, a cross is not intended to be a form of artwork. A cross, in its original form, was an instrument of execution. And crucifixion was, has been described by many people, as one of the most horrible, if not the most horrible, forms of execution. Ever devised by humans. Now, last week I was looking for a video clip to put um, in the service just to um, illustrate something, and it was a video clip of Jesus' trial. And one of the first video clips that I found was from The Passion of the Christ, the movie by Mel Gibson about nine years ago or so. But I quickly dismissed that video clip because it was so bloody. I kind of thought, you know, if we put that up here in the service, there might be some people who'd be offended, and especially parents of young children, we may think, oh, is that really appropriate? So I quickly went to look for a different video clip that wasn't quite as bloody and gory. But it was kind of ironic when I did that. I thought, because, you know, what I'm doing is looking for something that's a little bit more sanitary uh, than reality was back then. Because Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross was incredibly bloody. It was incredibly tragic and horrible to have witnessed if you were there. The Passion of the Christ, I mean, this movie we're talking about, definitely depicted that in a very graphic way. It was one of the bloodiest movies ever created, and it received a lot of criticism for that. I, I want to read you a couple uh, reviewers who are kind of mocking uh, how much blood and gore there was in The Passion of the Christ. Uh, one was from Slate magazine. He started out by describing just what took place in the movie. He said pretty much 15 minutes in, Jesus started suffering, and he kept suffering um, all the way through the course of the rest of the movie. And here's what he said after he described that basic storyline. He said, You're thinking there must be something to the passion of the Christ besides watching a man tortured to death, right? Actually, no. This is a two-hour and six-minute snuff movie, The Jesus Chainsaw Massacre, that thinks it's an act of faith. For Gibson, Jesus is defined not by his teachings in life, by his message of mercy, social justice, and self-denial, some of it rooted in the Jewish Torah, much of it defiantly personal, but by the manner of his execution. Now, I thought that was kind of humorous when uh, he described the movie as the Jesus Chainsaw Massacre, just trying to make light of how much blood and gore there was in there. Let me read a more mainstream review from the Los Angeles Daily News. It said, it's as if Gibson is measuring God's love by the amount of blood he shows on the screen. Now, I hear these reviews that are intended to sort of mock the movie, but I also recognize there's a significant kernel of truth in each one of them as well. In that first one, he's saying that it's as if Jesus' death, his execution, is one of the defining aspects of Jesus' life. And that's completely true. If you look at the New Testament, it's tough to define the purpose of Jesus apart from his death. That's why he came. And in the second quote, talking about measuring God's love by, by the blood, well, in a very significant way, that is true. That, that the blood and the suffering of Christ are a significant indication of the depth of God's love for us. Now, it doesn't necessarily make the movie any easier to watch, especially if you're a bit squeamish when it comes to blood. But I would say that the passion of the Christ does... It is one of the most accurate portrayals we have of of the suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross. And today I want to dive a little bit more into that suffering and the death that Jesus underwent. Uh, we are continuing today our Easter experience series by looking at a passage out of Matthew chapter 27. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 27. We're right, also going to be looking at a couple other passages, but the main one is here in Matthew 27. We're in our third week of the Easter Experience series where our entire goal in this series is to gain a fresh perspective on the suffering, and the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Because it's so easy, especially if you've grown up in America, if you've grown up in church, to take these truths for granted, the truths of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. We come around uh, to this, these truths every single year around Easter time. And it's important to bring these things up, but we're seeking to gain a fresh perspective on the significance of these things in history and also in our lives. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in to really examine prayerfully with fresh eyes Jesus' suffering and his death. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come to you now just thinking about what you endured 2,000 years ago. It's, it's really quite shocking. It's quite horrifying when we think about what you underwent. I mean, we all have experienced various forms of pain and suffering But most likely it's nothing compared to what you underwent. And you underwent it on our behalf. And I pray now as we look into Scripture and as we think about what took place in history to you, that you will give us fresh eyes and fresh ears and willing hearts to respond as you want us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start out by looking at what actually took place. And then we're going to talk about um, really why did this happen? Why did all this take place? And so, first of all, we're going to look at what could be called a trail of blood from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Golgotha is the place where Jesus was crucified. It's a trail of blood because blood is, is a significant part of each one of these things. It starts out in Gethsemane. Oftentimes we think of, of Jesus' blood starting um, when he was beaten. It actually started before that. The night before Jesus was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples went up there so that Jesus could pray in order to prepare himself for what he was going to undergo the following day. And Jesus was in great anguish. We see him praying multiple times, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. And when Jesus is talking about this cup that he wants taken from him, it's, it's a word picture. It's a metaphor. It's very prominent in the Old Testament. The cup is represents God's wrath poured out on sinful humans. And when Jesus was going to the cross, he knew that he was going to bear God's wrath upon him, God's wrath for sin, that every single sin of human beings were going to be put on him, and he was going to bear that wrath. He was fearful of that. He knew that he was going to undergo that, but he was saying, God, if there's any way, let me, let me have a different route than that. And we see over in Luke uh, what is happening to Jesus during that time in the anguish. It says in Luke twenty two, forty-four, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now Luke, who is writing that account, is a doctor, medical doctor, just like we have medical doctors today. I, I find it interesting that Luke is the only one who draws out that detail of what takes place as Jesus is praying. I think it's very appropriate because Luke is paying attention to those sorts of medical details. What's taking place here is a medical condition called hematidrosis, uh, which is when you have capillaries in your head that under severe and extreme stress and anxiety, they begin to burst. And they leak blood into the sweat glands. And so when you're under that extreme stress and undergoing that medical condition, the blood uh, from the burst capillaries mixes with your sweat. So it looks like you're actually sweating drops of blood. And this is what Jesus is experiencing as he is looking ahead to what's going to take place the following day. So that's the first step in the trail of blood. It continues a number of hours later when Jesus is being flogged. We see in Matthew 27, 26, then then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is at the very end of what we looked at last week where Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate. And at the end of that, the the crowd said, we want Barabbas, this murderer, this insurrectionist. We want him to be released, and we want Jesus to be crucified. So we see that Pilate handed Jesus over to be flogged and to be crucified. Now, in that Roman culture, the first step of being crucified was to be flogged. It was just a natural thing that they did in order to increase the intensity of the pain and the suffering on the part of the person being crucified. Now, there's, there's a misconception oftentimes about Jesus uh, flogging. Many times people think, based on other parts of Scripture, that Jesus was flogged 39 times. It's a, it's a part of the Jewish law back in the Old Testament that a, a Jewish person should not be flogged more than 40 times. It's written in Deuteronomy. And so the practice among Jewish people was that if they were going to flog someone, they did it only 39 times, 40 minus 1, just in case they miscounted so that they wouldn't break God's law. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing the sufferings that he underwent. And he said, five times I was flogged by the Jewish people, the 40 lashes minus one. So he was flogged 39 times by Jewish people. And that happened to Paul five different times. It's easy to think, okay, well, Jesus, he was probably flogged 39 times too. But you have to remember who was flogging Jesus. It was not the Jewish people. It was Romans. And the Romans had no such law that limited the number of times he could be flogged. The only stipulation in Roman law that had to do with flogging was that the flogging had to be severe enough to cause the flesh to hang from the back of the person. That was the only stipulation for flogging in the Roman law. And the instrument for this flogging is a type of whip called the Catenine Tails. It's a leather whip that has multiple strands coming off of it. But the Romans oftentimes didn't stop just with that basic whip. They would put metal balls on that whip in order to increase the force with which the whip would come down on the victim's back. And then they would also oftentimes put little shards of bone or of metal in that whip as well in order to catch the skin and to rip it up. I mean, it's not a pretty picture here. I mean, I was trying to think of what would this be like? What have I experienced it? I mean, I haven't experienced anything that's anywhere near that. I thought of if you're holding a cat that still has claws and the cat grabs a hold of your skin and you try to pull that cat away while his claws are still dug in, you get a little picture of what that that tearing is like. That's not a comfortable feeling, is it? Even with little claws on a cat. Multiply that times a thousand and that might begin to get to the feeling of what it would be like to have that cat nine tails with their shards of metal and bone digging into your back. And the way that the, the soldiers administered this flogging was not just meant to leave little welts on the back, but it was meant to, to drag that cat and and tails across the back in order to tear it to pieces. I mean, it would go through the skin. It would tear apart the muscles. It would get down to bone and down to the spine. The flogging was not just on the back itself. It started up at the shoulders and went down the back of the legs, usually down to around the knees or so. There's a 3rd century historian named Eusebius who describes the Roman floggings and said the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and intestines of the victim were open to exposure. The Roman floggings were so bad that there are many, many criminals who were uh, sentenced to be crucified who never actually made it to the cross because they died during the flogging. That's how bad it was. And we think about this, and I think it's interesting to to compare what Jesus is going through here with the picture of Jesus we get through a lot of the rest of the New Testament. Because, I mean, think about it. At Christmas time. We're all sentimental, sentimental about the birth of Jesus, about Mary and Joseph having this little son laid in a manger and stuff like that. We get sentimental about that story. We look at the teachings of Jesus, and in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We see his compassion for those who are sick, those who are outcasts from society. We see the grace and forgiveness he expen- extends to people like the woman caught in adultery. I mean, this is the Jesus whom we love. And this is the Jesus who at this point, when he's being flogged, his hands are tied to a post and his back and his shoulders and his legs are being ripped to pieces as he is being flogged. I want to move on to see what's going to happen next. Because, you know, that's all that was prescribed was flogging, which would be enough. But the soldiers decided to take another step with Jesus. And that's the step of mocking him. Pick up with me in Matthew 27, verse 27. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. So now they're gathering a whole crowd of soldiers around Jesus to witness what's going to happen next in the mockery. It says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. Now, as I said, Pilate prescribed the flogging. That's a natural part of crucifixion. But no one ever told the soldiers that they should mock him. This is something they took upon themselves. When they, when they heard that Jesus had supposedly said that he was a king, they thought, let's have some fun with him. So they fashioned together this, this crown of thorns, stuck it down on his head. Now, the forehead doesn't really have that many nerves in it. So the pain, I mean, it, he definitely would have felt pain, but it wouldn't have been as bad as, say, a flogging. But the forehead has a lot of those capillaries that would have been bursting. So he would have just been a bloody mess from head to toe by this point. And they put a robe on him and, and put a staff in his, hat, in his hand and bowed down to him, just mocking him. And then they took that staff and repeatedly beat him in the head. I mean, it's one thing to say these words and to hear them, but to really begin to picture what was taking place, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite alarming And as I think about this, one of the things that amazes me in this whole thing is that none of this was happening to Jesus apart from his will. See, he could have snapped his fingers at any moment, and it could be over. Because he wasn't a normal criminal. He was God come to earth in the form of a human being. Well, I like to read a variety of different books. Uh, Right now, as, as we have... A new child in our house, my ability to read books is a little bit more hindered, but still um, I've gotten into a good book recently and ended up staying up late reading a lot of nights. But one of the the, uh, themes I've been reading about recently is a couple of different books that focus on the Navy SEALs, the elite fighting force within the U.S. Navy. And one of the things that's really interesting about the Navy SEALs is the process of training that they have in selection to determine who is going to become a Navy SEAL. I would like to think that I can make it through what they go through, but I don't think I would. Um, I don't think most, most Americans could make it through that. In fact, those who try to make it into the Navy SEALs, um, who are already regular Navy servicemen, uh, already in tremendous shape, the vast majority of them drop out. And in, in a central location when they are going through training, there is a bell if at any point the training becomes too difficult and they want to end the pain and end the suffering, all they have to do is go ring that bell, and it's done for them. They can call it quits. And I know that there would be times that that's incredibly tempting, especially there's one particular week that is such a horrible week that, I mean, it's so intense that they're consuming over 7,000 calories a day and they're still losing weight because of the intensity of what they're doing. That over that one week, they can sleep a total of four hours in that one whole week. I mean, it's pushing them to their human limits and beyond just seeing what they can do. I mean, they're so near hypothermia so often. I mean, they're, they're near drowning so often. And that bell is sitting right there the entire time. If at any time they think, I've had enough, I, don't, I can't handle this anymore, I'm not going to do it anymore, they can just simply go ring that bell and it's over for them the suffering, and the pain had stopped. Jesus had the same opportunity. Any time during the suffering, during the flogging, during the mockery, he could have essentially rang a bell, and it could have been over. He could have snapped his fingers, and it could have all been done. In fact, a little bit earlier when Jesus is talking with Pilate, he says, Um, Don't you know, I have 12 legions of angels at my command. If I call them, they will come and defend me. 12 legions of angels is 72,000 angels that would come and defend Jesus. All he would have had to do is snap his fingers or say one word, and he could have been saved out of this. That's one of the things that amazes me about what what he's doing is he perseveres through it. He does not ring the bell. He does not give up. And we see that after the soldiers had, has, had mocked him, they led him away to crucify him. Now, crucifixion, as I said, is one of the most horrible deaths a person can never die. In crucifixion, they take spikes that are somewhere around six inches long. They drive him through the wrist. I mean, sometimes you see the spikes driven through the hand in pictures. It's not through the hand because the hand is too weak to support the weight of a human being for very long. It would just rip right through. So they put them in the the wrist, which have these incredibly sensitive nerves in there. They put them through the feet and nail a victim to the cross. And as if that's not bad enough, one one of the worst things there is that that they are suffering up there, oftentimes for days. Because the way that most uh, crucifixion victims die is by suffocation or asphyxiation, usually after many days. Because when they're hanging like this, their shoulders get out of joint. And the only way they can get a breath um, due to their posture is to pull themselves up on the nails and get a breath, and then they slump back down. And then next time they need a breath, they have to pull themselves back up. You can imagine the the agonizing pain that they would feel in those nail holes. And as they pull themselves up, the, the raw back that had been beaten by the flogging would be rubbing against the rough wood of the cross. Now, Jesus died after only a few hours on the cross, most likely because of the extreme amount of blood that he had lost. As I said, most die of suffocation or asphyxiation even days later. And so we see Jesus, he could have rang that bell at any time. He could have said, I've had enough, but he did not. The pain associated with, with crucifixion actually created a new word, the word excruciating. I mean, you think about excruciating, something that's really, really, really painful, really, really, really bad. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. A new word was formed to talk about how painful death on the cross is. At the end, Jesus did not ring the bell. Instead, he persevered through all the suffering and through the mockery and through the crucifixion. And right before he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. He accomplished the mission that he had come to earth to accomplish. So we see all this suffering. I mean, you can, if you want to see it vividly depicted on the screen, you can watch The Passion of the Christ. It's interesting how in the Bible, there really aren't graphic descriptions of what takes place. I mean, it simply says he was flogged. He was crucified. I think one of the main reasons for this is that the first century people who would be reading this, they didn't need to be told about the horrors of flogging and crucifixion. They lived that in that. I mean, you, you couldn't walk by Jerusalem and not see the crosses up on the hill with people there dying. That was what they experienced. But I think today we sometimes need to be reminded of the horrors of what Jesus went through. But it does lead to the question of why did all this happen? Why did all this happen in the first place? And I want to look at it on three different levels. The first level is what could be called the theological level. Uh, From God's perspective, why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why did he go through all this? Through the years, I've talked with many different people about Jesus and about what he's done, about the gospel and about the significance of Jesus in our lives. And I like to ask questions just to be able to understand, uh, okay, where are they coming from? Uh, What's their level of understanding of the gospel? And also I think questions can help with self-actualized learning. It can help people understand truth for themselves uh, in a fresh way. And one of the questions I like to ask people is, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? And and in response to that question, I I get a variety of answers, a lot of people kind of Shrug their shoulders and, like, well, I'm not really that sure. But one of the main answers I do get is, well, I think Jesus died to show how much He loves us. And when I hear that answer, I think, okay, that's partially true, but it's also an incomplete truth if you don't add more after that. To simply say that, that Jesus died on the cross to show how much He loves us is at best an incomplete truth. Let me share an illustration. You've, you may have heard me say it before, but I think it's very helpful. Imagine that you are with a friend, uh, downtown Port Washington. You're out at the harbor, and you see the lighthouse out there, and you think, okay, we want to go walk out to the lighthouse and check it out on that little pier out there. So you're walking out there, and your friend is uh, just talking about, you know, I really value our friendship a lot. And uh, you've really meant a lot to me. You've helped me a lot through the years, and and I, I care about you a lot. You know, actually, I want to show you how much I really love you. I want to do something really special to show you. And with that, your friend takes a flying leap off the pier into the rocks and the water below and dies. Now, I guarantee you that you would not be thinking at that moment, wow, they really did love me. <laughs> you wouldn't be thinking that, would you? I mean, that would be one of the last things. You would think, What? well, I mean, you would be devastated, but also you'd just be wondering, what is, what's, where is the disconnect in their mind? That suicide did not show me how much they loved me. In the same way, Jesus going to die on the cross in and of itself does not demonstrate love unless his death was for some greater purpose. And that greater purpose is told throughout the Bible. And one of the places I want to point us for this is out of Romans chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just write it down and check it out later. Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. Uh, I want to say it's one of the clearest descriptions of why Jesus died But I also think it's important to clarify that this is one of the most theologically dense passages in all of the Bible. But it's very rich. We could camp out here for a long time. But I just want to read it, and then I'll give three summarizing points to to point to why Jesus had to die from God's perspective. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And that's talking about the sins committed in the generations before Christ came to earth. And it says, He left them unpunished then, but He did this now to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, as I said, it's a very theologically dense passage. There's a lot built in there. So let me draw out three summarizing points that point to why Jesus had to die. The first of all is that that in order to stand in God's presence, we need sinless righteousness. God is a holy God. He's a perfect God. And as such, he cannot allow sin to come into his presence. Sin and holiness cannot coexist. We need sinless righteousness to stand in God's presence. But the problem is, As verse 23 says, that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. But there is hope. And God says that there is a righteousness that's come from God that he has revealed. And it's been revealed through Christ who justifies us freely by his grace. This idea of being justified, you can look at this kind of play on words. Being justified is a legal term that means to be declared innocent to be declared essentially by a judge to be righteous. And if we place our faith in Christ because of what Christ has done, it can be just as if I had never sinned. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared innocent and righteous, which can restore a right relationship with God through faith. But but Paul is very clear at the end of this passage that, that God did not set aside justice in order to declare us innocent, I mean, if you have someone who is guilty, um, say you have someone who commits murder, and, and the, the person is standing before the ju- judge, and there's overwhelming evidence against that person that, yes, he has committed murder, and he's even, uh, he's even admitted it himself, it would be perverting justice if the judge send, said, well, okay, yes, you are a murderer, but I'm gonna ignore that, I'm gonna declare you innocent, you're free to go. That's perverting justice, isn't it? God did not pervert justice when he declared us innocent and righteous. Instead, Jesus' death upholds justice. It says God did all this in order to demonstrate his justice. He did to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just. But then also at the end of verse 26, it says, he is also the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. God took the punishment on himself in the form of Jesus Christ in order to uphold justice. So he paid the penalty that we deserve. I really like the way that Paul says it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says that God made him who had no sin, that's referring to Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So what's taking place here is an incredible transfer where where we give Christ our sin and we get from Jesus his righteousness. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. Uh, He was perfectly righteous. He gave us his righteousness and he took our sin upon himself on the cross. And what, what happened then is that on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. The theological term for this is substitutionary Atonement. He atoned for our sins. He made payment for our sins by being a substitute, taking our place, paying the penalty that we deserve. At the end, he said, it is finished. The Greek word there is "telestai," which means paid in full. We had a debt that we owed because of our sin, and Jesus paid it fully. So on a theological level, this is why Jesus had to suffer and die in order to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. Now I want to move to a different level, on a human level. Why did all this have to happen to Jesus with the suffering and this death? Well, I think one of the reasons why, on a human level, is what we talked about last week. That there were Jewish leaders who despised Jesus, and they handed him over to the Romans. And so from a human perspective, that's the process that took place. People despised Jesus, people with evil schemes had Jesus suffered or um, flogged and crucified. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter is addressing Jewish people right after Jesus ascended into heaven and said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So we see this, the evil schemes of people that led Jesus to the suffering and this death. Now there's still a logical question of, okay, well, yes, I see that Jesus had to die. Why did he have to go through so much suffering? Well, I think one of the reasons is simply it shows the cruelty of humanity, Jesus is certainly not the only one who suffered in that way. There were thousands of others who were flogged and crucified just like Jesus was who also suffered the cruelty of humanity. Humans can be incredibly cruel. I mean, I think we've all probably experienced this to some degree, whether it's by words that were said to us that shouldn't have been said, things that were done, or sometimes things that should have uh, been done in terms of kindness or care towards us that was left undone. I mean, you look around the world at violence all around the world that takes place constantly. I mean, think about the Newtown Massacre that took place a couple of months ago. I mean, there's so much cruelty in the human race. As we look at Jesus going to pay for the sins of the world, which includes that cruelty, you know, it's kind of appropriate that Jesus, on the way to pay for the sins of the world, experienced a a, a healthy, or not a healthy dose, but a, a major dose of the cruelty and the sin that humans... Could give out. So that's a human level of why Jesus underwent all this. Now I want to zoom in even more to the personal level, looking at okay, what does this have to do with us? I think when we look at the suffering and, and death of Jesus, it's not enough just to say, "Well, oh, that's nice, Jesus. Oh, that's cool. Thank you." It's not enough just to stop there. Kyle Eidelman, who's uh, the pastor who put together this whole Easter Experience series, if you are in the Easter Experience Life groups, he's the pastor who appears on the DVDs. Kyle Eidelman tells a story of the first time that he was watching the movie The Passion of the Christ in theaters. Uh, he was in a, a normal theater viewing of it. And he was sitting in one seat, his wife was next to him, and the next seat over was a guy who acted like he was just watching a normal movie. He ordered popcorn. He had a soda there. And, and throughout the movie, as Jesus is sitting there being flogged and crucified, this guy is just sitting there munching on popcorn and, and sipping his soda. And Kyle Eidelman said, you know, he's getting kind of frustrated with this guy. It's like, how can you watch what's taking place up there and sit there and just munch on your popcorn and, eat, and drink soda just like it's a normal movie? So at the end of the movie, Kyle Eidelman um, is walking out next to this guy and says, so what do you think of this movie? And the guy just turned to him. And said, you know, I think Mel Gibson did a better job directing Braveheart. That was the guy's response to the passion of the Christ. His response to Jesus' suffering and death. That is not, certainly not an appropriate response. So what is an appropriate response? Well, I think there are a couple of levels we can answer this on. One is this response of faith. We saw it in Romans chapter 3. Go back to the idea of, of sin earning us a death penalty, that we have a penalty we deserve. The wages of sin is death. Imagine that we are all in spiritual death row and all waiting for, say, the spiritual, death, or spiritual electric chair. We're all in death row because of our sins. The wages of sin is death. And that's where we all naturally are because of our sins. And, you know, we may, like to take the, we may like to let someone else off death row. You have a spouse, you have kids, you have a good friend. You may say, you know, I'd love to get them off death row if I could, but we can't because we're all guilty. We can't take anyone else's spot on death row because we have our own penalty to pay. But then Jesus comes along and taps you on the shoulder and says, I'd like to take your place. I don't have my own death penalty to pay because I've never sinned. I can take your place. Justice would still be fulfilled. A punishment would still be delivered. But if you will let me, I will, let, I will take your place so that you will go free and I will be executed in your place. That's essentially what the gospel is. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to take your place. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why he died on a cross to take our place. And the way that we allow Jesus to take our place is by faith in him. By saying, Jesus... I know I can't earn righteousness on my own through my good works. I'm going to trust in what you've done on the cross to pay the penalty for me. So that's, that's a first step. And we always need to be walking by faith in God's grace with that. But I also think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says that Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what Paul's saying here is that if we have faith in Christ, because Christ died for all of us, that we should no longer live for ourselves. But instead we should live for God. Really, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is our model, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And so we need to be examining ourselves, asking, am I living for myself? Am I living for selfish motives? Am I living just to do what I want to do? Or am I surrendering it all to God, allowing him to be in the driver's seat and saying, God, you guide my life. You are the one who should be my Lord, who's in control. Now, in closing this morning, I want to just point out something that people often say. It's very common for people to say, "You know, life just isn't fair." And we were talking about the cruelty of humanity. Talk about the, the Newtown massacre. Talk about um, people who are ravaged by cancer um, at seemingly much too young age. Talk about tsunamis that in the blink of an eye wipe out hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, talk about even on a smaller scale in our own lives when we're passed over for a job promotion or don't get a job that we think that we should have gotten. There are so many things in life that can cause us just to think, you know, life is so unfair. And, you know, in many ways, it is. In this broken world, that's the reality. But I will also say there's a part of me that is glad that life isn't completely fair. Because if life was completely fair, we all would be condemned to hell. That's what our sins earn us. It wasn't fair that Jesus went to the cross and paid our penalty for sins that he suffered. It wasn't fair. It was grace, though. It was a gift that we didn't deserve. And for that reason, I'm very thankful that that Jesus chose not to give us what we deserve, but to give us grace by going to the cross and suffering the penalty we deserved For our sins. Isaiah 53 is a very common passage when we're talking about Jesus' suffering and death. It was a prophecy that took place hundreds of years before the time of Christ, looking ahead to Jesus' suffering. I quoted from it last week, but I want to do it again this week. But I want you to listen to the pronouns in these verses from Isaiah 53. Listen to the pronouns, the he and the us and the ours. It says, But he, meaning Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The process of Jesus redeeming us certainly was not a pretty process, but the outcome is absolutely amazing when you consider what Christ has done for us. Praise him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is astounding to think about what you've done for us. We want to say thank you. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came and died for us. But Lord, I pray that we will not stop with simply lip service of saying thank you, but that we will move on to that point of surrendering our lives to you by faith and following you wholeheartedly, saying not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, what you did is amazing. There's nothing that we can ever do to repay you for that. And you don't ask for repayment, but you do ask for surrender to you. And pray that we will no longer live in self-centered ways, but that we will follow you for you're worthy. And again, we want to say thank you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.